Well, it is always a joy to be with you all in this capacity on the other side of the pew. And I suppose I should begin with a similar question. Andy, who's watching the kids? <laughs> but speaking of the kids, we have been doing a lot more reading, reading chapter books, reading lengthy books together. Strangely, though, they haven't been really getting into one of my favorite series, uh, The Chronicles of Narnia. And so I'm going to recount to you uh, one of the scenes, one of the most wonderful scenes in one of the books in the series. Um, Aslan, at this point, the great lion, is about to send the children on another mission. But before he does, he takes them to a high mountain to give them very specific instructions. And he ends by saying, remember, remember, remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you wake in the morning and when you lie down at night and when you wake in the middle of the night. And whatever strange things may happen to you, let nothing turn your mind from following the signs. Secondly, I give you a warning. Here on the mountain, I have spoke to you clearly. I will not often do so in Narnia. Here on the mountain, the air is clear and your mind is clear. As you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind. And the signs which you have, you have learned here will not look at all as you expect them to look when you meet them there. That is why it is so important to know them by heart and pay no attention to appearances. Remember the signs and believe the signs. Nothing else matters. We're at the end of the season of Epiphany, the season of signs, of days of seeing, seeing fresh, seeing anew God's revelation in Jesus Christ, God incarnate, God with us, Emmanuel. As we continue on, it's often good to remember where we've come from and how far we've come. The lectionary this season of Epiphany has led us mostly through the Gospel of Matthew from the first Sunday of Epiphany, where we began with those familiar texts, where the Magi arrive at Jesus' birthplace, foreigners who perhaps saw more clearly than anyone else and called the baby king. And then to his baptism, the reminder that God sees and loves Jesus and then calls him beloved. And then we did this sort of brief excursion to John's gospel when we get John the baptizer's naming of Jesus. He sees him and calls him the Lamb of God. And then the disciples see him and call him rabbi, teacher, Messiah, anointed one. And then back to Matthew, Jesus calling the disciples, he sees them, he calls them, and even gives them new names. Simon, you are now Peter. And finally, then through much of the Sermon on the Mount and a glimpse of the kind of kingdom he is intent on ushering through the beloved community. In an age of increasing interest in DNA sequencing and data from population genetics, you know, Ancestry and Me, Ancestry.com, um, Matthew is particularly compelling for its emphasis on generations, on genealogies, on being rooted in one's roots the relationships between ancestors and descendants, and the way he makes explicit the line from Jesus to all the familiar characters beginning with Abraham to King David to less familiar names, 
But nevertheless, straight through as the crow flies to Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah. So all the generations, Matthew tells us, from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon are 14 generations. From David, uh, or from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. All those names. But it's not just the people, but the combination of people and places that continues to be meaningful to the original hearers of this gospel, as well as to us today. For example, the wilderness figures large in Israel's history, from the wandering in the deserts of Canaan to Mount Sinai, also known as Horeb, to the River Jordan, which is where we know Jesus was also baptized by his cousin John. Now, we might remember in the Synoptic Gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the writers record Jesus coming to John the Baptist, a dove descending, and a voice from heaven proclaiming, naming Jesus' belovedness. These versions give us a dramatic glimpse of the inauguration of this new kingdom that Jesus will work to reveal through his teachings and miracles. So it's no coincidence, then, that the baptism takes place at another sacred place, the River Jordan, a marker full of rich motifs to the people who would hear these stories. It's the same place, not far from Jericho, where the Israelites crossed when they entered the land of Canaan with Joshua and experienced God's presence. As a priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant stepped into the river, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, and the Israelites were able to cross it, on dry ground. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? As they left Exodus, as they exodused into the promised land with Moses and were able to cross the Red Sea in the same way, a sign of their liberation. Later, we even read about the prophet Elijah, who also crossed the Jordan on dry ground with his protege, Elisha, just before he was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. And then Elisha even returns to Israel in the same way, crossing the Jordan on dry ground to inaugurate his own prophetic ministry. Jesus, too, is a new Joshua, again, who would begin this prophetic ministry to Israel and to the world, leading them into the promised land. What and where are those sacred places that help you to see, help you to remember? Who or what or where is the promise of your belovedness in God spoken and called out the most? So Jesus, too, begins his work anointed and ordained, given legitimacy by God's own voice in this special place. His ministry and work from that moment on then would never be separated from his identity as God's beloved, And so this belovedness is the persistent through line from Epiphany Sunday to Transfiguration Sunday today as we begin to transition to the next holy season. We find ourselves, too, at the top of another another sacred place, a high mountain, an image that looms large in their history as a people, a space that Jesus, Jesus often went to for quiet and solitude, Jesus, Jesus, at this point, who is not unlike Moses, communing with God in the desert when he received the sign of God's covenant with the people. Except in this moment, 
Instead of stone tablets, Jesus has brought along some stragglers, Peter, James, and John. These same stragglers are the ones who, in the previous chapter, responded to the question that Jesus asks, Who do people say that I am? Son of David, they answer. Son of man, son of God. And so this moment on the holy mountain is significant because it is a call to see all these identities in the person of Jesus ultimately grounded and pointing back to his baptism and again, his belovedness. However, that belovedness does not belong just to Jesus because he has called and gathered a community of believers around him. Jesus' baptism in his new work is rooted in the context of this community that is emerging around himself, the ones who have followed him up the mountain. And his identity and ministry is actually made more meaningful and powerful by the community that he forms, that he joins and grows throughout his life on earth, despite their bumbling and flailing, you know, let's uh, put up three shelters for you, which, you know, when I read it, now, instead of this sort of awkward outburst by Peter, I see it as a kind of sweet and thoughtful gesture, as if Peter is saying, you know, Moses and Elijah are here. Clearly, you'd want to hang out with them for a while. We get it. But despite their constantly faltering faith over and over, Jesus chooses them After God's voice flattens them onto their faces, Jesus touches them and says, Get up. Don't be afraid. I'm going back with you. We're in this together. And so God reminds Jesus and those that were gathered around Jesus who he is. And by extension, Jesus shows the disciples who they are. Beloved. But they can't stay at the summit. They can't stay there forever, though it is lovely with its views and everything is so bright and clear and exciting. At the River Jordan, Jesus gathers the disciples and begins his ministry of healing and feeding, but it is at the top of the mountain that God calls them to keep going. Jesus now turns more earnestly towards Jerusalem, with an urgency showing us the kingdom of heaven and what it means to dream and hope as we find it embodied in little children and through stories about wandering sheep and vineyard workers. So he calls the disciples to continue to follow him, to trust him, because he chose them. He saw them, he named them, he loved them, and he promised the most absurd and wonderful thing, that he will be with them. When my parents and I immigrated to the U.S. from South Korea on our own journey in the late 1970s, we we took the traditional path to citizenship through naturalization. Seven years later, when I was about eight years old, it was time for us to be officially received, flags and all, and I had the opportunity to change my name. And at the time, it seemed that many of the Korean Americans around us We're adding a first name like Joanne or Christine or Sarah, or for boys, David, Michael, John. I don't remember exactly what name I'd picked. It might have been Rebecca, good solid biblical name. 
or Elizabeth. I liked sort of the possibilities of all the nicknames, which struck me as solidly American, you know, have a nickname, a shortened name. But somehow we forgot the necessary paperwork or missed the deadline. Um, or maybe my parents got cold feet and didn't want me to actually change my name. Whatever the reason, the opportunity passed, and I recall being disappointed. But I soon forgot about it. Later on in college, though, I decided to add the American name Rachel. I call it my Starbucks name. <laughs> it's just a lot easier and a lot easier to spell and to explain. Names, whether Rachel or Mihi or pastor, mother, student or writer, they're not meant to be exhaustive of, a, of who a person is. We get caught up in names because we see them as a way to extend ourselves, to be known, to be fully received and completely understood. But names matter only if we believe that they point us to some singular sense of self and that the sense of self can be captured in this thing called identity, which we manage to somehow bumble through with labels and categories. But no one thing makes up who we are. And most days we only get a glimmering, like a flash of light of the reminder of our constantly changing and becoming. We are all an amalgamation of stories and dreams, of histories and genetics, easily affected by lunar cycles and barometric pressure and sunshine. What is your name? What names have you been given? What names have given you life? What names have made you remember that you are God's beloved? Because it isn't just about the name, but how we see each other and how we love one another. The name Mihi was given to me by my paternal grandfather in Korea. It's a common Korean name. It means beautiful girl. And today, that is the name I give to anyone and everyone who asks, spelling it loudly and clearly and slowly and explaining when necessary that it is Korean. Because it was given to me out of love and in love as a sign of my family's love for me, as a reminder of who I am, where I came from, and who continues to journey with me. In this season of epiphany, in the season of seeing, of naming, we are given signs too. Reminders that no one thing makes up who we are. And so God keeps calling us out to keep going, to keep journeying together, because all the ways we are seeing, living, and becoming are a way for God's kingdom to shine forth. Look around you and see the surprising and beautiful signs of God's faithfulness sitting right next to you. We are the promise of God's presence. Our belovedness is God's own glory. In the name of God the creator, redeemer, and sustainer, amen. <laughs>